I would encourage you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we'll be starting in verse 1 today of Acts chapter 10. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, no worries, we will have it on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, there should be a a blue paperback Bible somewhere near you in the pews. Uh, Feel free to use that, and then feel free to take that home with you uh, as a gift. If you don't own a Bible, we want to give that to you uh, and to enjoy Uh, But Acts chapter 10 is where we'll be today, starting in verse 1 down through verse 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, the centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God, come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He has lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today to your word. Lord, I ask that as we come today that we would come and we would feel the weight of what it is that we come to do today, Lord, that we come not to have our ears tickled, we come not to appease our own desires and our own selfish wants and ambitions, but we come today to do nothing less than to hear from the one true God. Lord, you have given us a way to do exactly that, and that is by your word. And so today, as we open up your word, as we read it, as we study it, I ask, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would guide and direct me and my teaching and my speech, that you would guide and direct the hearers today into all truth and righteousness. And Lord, that by the Holy Spirit, you might imprint upon us the reality and the truth of the gospel as revealed in your word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a uh, relatively well-known comedian by the name of Nate Bargatze. And I don't know if you are into to comedy or know who that is, but uh, he tells one particular story in one of his comedy routines of the time when his dog was very sick, his family dog that they had, whose name was Annie, and Annie had gotten cancer, and the vet had informed them that the cancer was very serious and the dog was going to die, and it probably wasn't going to be very long. And so, as they felt, kind of wondered what's the best way to handle this, they have a young daughter a young daughter who is very close to this dog. And they thought, well, we need to, we need to prepare our daughter for the death of this dog. And so they, they sat their daughter down and they said, listen, you know, Annie is very sick and we just want you to be ready. We want you to be prepared. She's, she's going to die and it's, it's going to be very soon. And so we just want you to know that that's coming and so you can be ready. And so, uh, and so that's the conversation they had with, with their daughter and, um, you know, a couple of days went by and the dog was, was not gone yet. And so, but they, 
they wanted to make sure that their daughter understood what was coming. So they sat her down. They had the conversation. And listen, Annie's, Annie's going to die. We just want you to be, be ready that she's going to die. And, and we want you to know. And then much to their surprise, Annie lived another six months after that. But as the guy described, as Nate described, they didn't want to give up on, you know, what their mission was. They stayed persistent. And so for six long months, they just every day over and over again continually told their daughter, hey, the dog's going to die. Their attempt was to, was to prepare their daughter for the, for the death of their dog, right? Uh, but then after six months while their daughter was at school, finally, after telling her over and over and over again, traumatizing her that, their, that her dog was going to die and she was just living with this weight over her head, finally, the dog passed away while she was at school and and Nate said, we got her from school, and, and I broke the news to her. And she acted like it was the first time she'd ever heard it and just took it so terribly. Their attempt in this situation was to prepare their daughter for this event. For a child, for a kid, even for adults, the loss of, of even a pet can be a very weighty thing. And, and knowing this, her parents, Nate and his wife, were, were seeking to, to prepare their daughter so that she would be able to make the transition well. Preparation for kind of big moments, big transitions are important. Even in like in the business world, we see this to be the case. If you've ever worked for a company that's tried to implement some sort of major change or, or undergone some sort of big development, you'll know that that is the moment of all moments. If something's going to go wrong, if something's going to bring this, this company down, it's going to be something like this. It's going to be change. And so it is necessary for a company before any kind of big change or, or developments to be made, they need to prepare, right? They need to have a plan, way out, a vision. They need to let everyone know what's coming. They need to prepare the employees, the shareholders, everyone involved for what is coming if it is going to succeed. Today, as we see here in Acts chapter 10, what I, I would propose to you that we have before us today is, is a portion of scripture where the Lord God is doing something similar in the life of the church. He is preparing the church for this great next step in redemptive history. This great next step that we know that is, is really what Acts 10 and even into 11 is all about. And that is the moment when the gospel and salvation comes to the Gentiles. This is the first time that anything like this has ever happened on this kind of scale. For the Jews up to this time, as we know... Gentiles were to them dirty, filthy. They were something to be avoided. In fact, it was Jewish custom and tradition that you were not even to associate with a Gentile by having them into your house or going into their house. And the Gentiles felt a very similar way about the Jews. They saw them as a source of derision, as a, as a mockery, and they, they would make great fun of them at their expense, and they just despised one another. There was indeed a, a great rift, a, an animosity between the Jews and the Gentile, and one that as we are going to see in our chapter today and as we move forward over the next few weeks, it is into this situation, this animosity, this hatred, that the Lord is going to reach in and combine these two people into one. <clears throat> the Lord is preparing in this moment all of the individuals involved for what is to come. Because what is to come is going to be 
monumental. In fact, it is one of the most significant portions that we have in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, perhaps the most, three most significant moments that we have are Pentecost, the conversion of Saul, and now this, the gospel coming to the Gentiles, the inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation. We see really what is happening here is what's described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 18, when Jesus says, I'm going to break down the dividing wall of hostility. He speaks of the Gentiles. Therefore, remember in Ephesians 2, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the situation to which the Lord is now reaching in and intervening and bringing what we see in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. What Paul is describing there in Ephesians chapter two, one of the most profound chapters on unity among the believers, unity among the church, he is describing what is happening here in Acts chapter 10. This moment when salvation no longer was something seen only as applying to the Jews, and as we know from a few previous chapters, the the Samaritans also included, but now even to the Gentiles, salvation is coming The Lord is fulfilling the final phase of the plan that he laid out in Acts chapter 1 when he told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to all the end of the earth. This final phase of Jesus' redemptive salvation plan is now coming to a head here in Acts chapter 10. And what we see in verses one through eight in this vision that Cornelius has is Jesus, is the Lord God preparing the way, preparing all the parties involved for what he has in store for them and for the church. The Lord is preparing this man named Cornelius. He is calling him, drawing him to himself, and he gives him a vision directing him what to do here in Acts chapter 10, verses one through eight. But as we will see next week in our text, the Lord is also preparing the apostle Peter for what God has called him to do and that he is to be the instrument that the Lord will use to bring salvation to the Jews. Some commentators have said it is, it is the keys to the kingdom which Peter were, was given and this is the final key to unlock the door to the Gentiles, to bring salvation to all the world. This is what the Lord is now preparing. And, and on both sides, both in the heart of Cornelius and in the heart of Peter, for the gospel to come to the Gentiles. And this task would undoubtedly require a kind of preparation. 
considering how the Jews and Gentiles so despised one another. This was not something that was just going to be solved by baking some friendship bread and sitting down with one another. It was going to take a miraculous divine intervention in order for anything like this to ever take place. And that is exactly what the Lord does here in this scene. In this scene where salvation now comes not only to Cornelius, but to all the Gentiles. And so the Lord and his is the divine orchestrator of the salvation of not just the Gentiles in general, but this Gentile specifically. The Lord moves to prepare both the receiver of the gospel and the carrier of the gospel. But we will look specifically today at this receiver of the gospel and how the Lord was preparing him. We're introduced in this text to this guy named Cornelius. And I want us to just ask a few questions of this text today. The first question I want us to ask is, who was Cornelius? Who was this guy that we have presented before us here in Acts chapter 10? We see a a short description of who he was in verses 1 and 2. We know that he lived in Caesarea. It says at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave, uh, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Here we have this short description of this man named Cornelius. And we see first and foremost, and what for our text and the overarching theme of Acts chapter 10 is most important, the fact that he was a Gentile. That this was not a a Jew that we have before us here, but it was a Gentile. Not only was he a Gentile, but he was a centurion of the Italian cohort. There are some things to note about this that I find to be interesting and significant. This means that as as a centurion, he was in charge of at least 100 men. He was a a tough man. Uh, Centurions were not uh, a kind of position that you could get into without having a sense of of toughness, without being firm, without being disciplined. He was a tough guy, which makes verse number four all the more interesting that he, when he saw the angel, angel stared in terror. But he was a tough guy. The idea that he was was both a centurion, so in charge of a hundred men, But a centurion as a part of the Italian cohort was even more significant for the fact that a centurion and and kind of soldiers that were a part of these cohorts were typically drawn from whatever province they lived in and were working in. But with the Italian cohort specifically, this was considered to be the cream of the crop. You didn't get to be in the Italian cohort unless you were somebody significant. So this man, based on his position, based on where he was, would have been well-known. And in fact, what we know from what his servants tell Peter, he is well-known and well-thought-of by other people and by the Jews. Then we get to the next thing that is described of Cornelius, and that is that he is a devout God-fearer. In verse 2, it says that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. This is an interesting statement about Cornelius, that he is a God-fearer. In a sense, Luke is telling us what category Cornelius fits into. Because he was not a Jew, and so he could not be described rightly as a Jew, nor could could he be described as a proselyte or a, a convert to Judaism. But he is found in this sort of middle category of God 
God-fearer. This was a way to describe those who were maybe Gentile in origin and in birth, yet recognized and even participated in Jewish practices. And, in, and for all intents and purposes, accepted Judaism as their religion, but without certain ceremonial practices, namely without circumcision. So this was a man who, who though he feared the Lord, the God of Israel, and recognized him as the one true God and worshiped him and prayed to him, he would have been barred from the temple. He would have had to remain outside the temple walls with the other Gentiles, all those who were uncircumcised because he was not a Jew, nor was he a convert to Judaism, not in the fullest sense. Likely, this would have been rare among Roman soldiers. They were not particularly known for their good qualities and their moral upstanding nature. And so this would have made Cornelius stand out as one who not only loved the Lord, but followed him and his moral teachings. But what is, I think, especially significant about, about the fact that he was a God-fearer is that in this divine orchestration, as God is about to intercede to bring salvation to the Gentiles, he selects this particular Gentile. Not one who rejects all that has to do with Judaism. Not one who is just uh, engaging in all kinds of paganism and, and pagan practices as, as what many of the Roman soldiers likely did. But one who was actually somewhat close to Judaism. Identified himself with Judaism to a great degree. Even probably participated in the synagogue. In fact, as we know, when the the vision of this angel came to him, he was actually in prayer, the ninth hour as described in our text. What was that hour? It was the designated hour of prayer for the Jews. And again, as we see later in the passage, the servants who go to Peter describe that he was in prayer when the vision of this angel came to him. And I find this to be significant because of the fact that as we will see, as the, the Holy Spirit comes, as Peter comes and he, he preaches the gospel to this man, Cornelius. What does not happen is that Cornelius is not encouraged further into Judaism. You would think that might be the proper next step. Okay, if you want to participate in the worship of the one true God, then maybe what you need to do is, is just go all the way. Quit dragging your feet and being afraid of circumcision and just go for it and become a Jew. But that's not what we see happen to this man, Cornelius. In fact, Peter never once recommends circumcision, never once indicates that this man should embrace Judaism fully, but turns him to something else, something greater. We see also that this man was a giver of alms, this pointing us all the more to the fact that he was committed to the Jewish religion to a great degree. Outside of the ceremonial practices, outside of of the, the giving of, of sacrifices outside of circumcision, there was very little in the eyes of the Jews that demonstrated your piety, your commitment to your faith, to your religion, more than the giving of alms. So this man demonstrated even in that. More than that, he was a man of prayer. He was a man committed to pray, even as the text says, he prayed continually to God. Who was Cornelius? He was all of these things. He was a soldier. He was a, a God-fearer. He was a giver of alms. He was a man of prayer. 
So we learn a, a fair amount about who Cornelius is. We know that he was a family man. He had a, a household of people who feared the Lord with him. But really the next question I want to ask, we've kind of laid the groundwork for who is Cornelius. I want to ask the question, what was Cornelius? There's some debate over whether or not this guy Cornelius was a Christian already at this time when we find him here in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8 or not. Whether or not he had already been born again or not. And when you look at the description of Cornelius, you could conclude, as some do, that this is a man who has been redeemed. After all, he is a God-fearer. He gives alms. He prays continually to God. Even the Jews think highly of this guy. One might assume, and understandably so, that Cornelius, by the time we find him here in Acts, is already a born-again Christian, regenerated. But in fact, despite all of this description, and despite all the things said of Cornelius, he was still lost. Cornelius, the God-fearer, the giver of alms, the one who prays continually, was lost. He was a man fervent in his religion, devout, and yet separated from salvation and still in need of cleansing. This is an important reminder to us that regardless of how devout a person is, how much they give to the, to the poor, how fervently they pray, none of those things are markers that determine a person's eternal state. None of those things. The only thing that determines whether or not a person is truly saved is whether or not they are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. That is it. We can see people all around us who, like Cornelius, are devout. They are fervent. They have a great zeal, right? And yet apart from faith in Christ alone, none of that means anything. None of that counts even one iota towards a person's righteousness. The confirmation of what I'm saying comes in the following chapter. As Peter is recounting what happened here in this event, in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, as he is telling the church what happened, he says of Cornelius, and he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. And then check out what he says in verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy, Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. We see clearly as Peter is recounting the situation that despite the fact that this man was a God-fearer and his household, despite his giving of alms, despite his prayer, this man was utterly lost because he was separated from Christ. It was the message of Christ, the message of the gospel by which Cornelius would be saved and nothing else. We oftentimes, I think, look to other factors to determine the state of a person 
other factors besides what they believe about Jesus. We see people all around us. I mean, we live in a culture today that while it is indeed increasingly secularizing, still filled with people who are devout in their faith, in their religious activities, in their piety. People that we might even say, look at their life. Surely this person is saved. Look at how committed they were to their church. Look at how much they prayed. They read their Bible all the time. Surely this person was saved. And while those things, I posit, will flow out of the life of a true believer, none of those things is what makes a true believer. But it is only faith in Christ. Not only do we sometimes look at others and determine their eternal state by those things, but I think there is an equally bad habit of looking at ourselves and determining ourselves by the same standards. Considering our eternal state by those same things. And this goes both ways. There are some who look to themselves and think, like some in the Bible have said, did, did I not do this, Lord, in your name? Did I not do this, Lord, in your name? People might look at themselves and think of all that they have done for the sake of the church. All that they do in their daily routine to commit themselves to these practices and think, man, if anyone is saved, I am. Look at what I've done. Look at the, the fruit in my life. And that's a dangerous thing, to look at the fruit that you are bearing in your life and conclude based on that and that alone that you are saved. But it's just as problematic a thing, I would argue, to look at your life and see your brokenness and see your sin and see where you fail and fall short and conclude, I must not be a Christian because these things are true of me. Because I know my sin. I know how I fall short. I know my shortcomings. I know what I did and said to the people that I love this week. I know what I thought to myself. I know what I looked at this week. And conclude based on those things. How could I possibly be saved? And these are exactly the kinds of things that the devil would love for us to set our minds on. You see, the devil is happy for you to look to yourself to find assurance in salvation, isn't he? He would love that because he knows as well as you and I know that the more you look to yourself to be assured of your salvation, the more you're going to lack assurance because assurance of salvation is not found in ourselves. It is not found in how good we are, how well we perform, how much fruit we produce. Assurance of salvation is found solely and completely in the finished work of Christ, in his righteousness, not in yourself. So Christian, if you find yourself discouraged because you see that you are a sinful person, do not look there for the hope of your salvation, but look the same place that Peter is gonna point Cornelius to, look to Christ and what he has done on the cross. Cornelius was a man who was being drawn to the Lord by the Spirit. One who saw the lacking in paganism of the Romans and recognized the Jewish God as the one true God. But even with all of that, the essential ingredient of salvation was lacking. 
faith in Christ. But it was a lacking that the Lord was going to remedy. It was by means of the gospel message rightly proclaimed that Cornelius and his family were to be saved. Not by devout observance or by almsgiving or fervency in prayer. It is knowledge of Christ and faith in him alone that can save. As Peter says later on in verse 43, to him, that is Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It does not mean that all those things, giving of alms, fervent prayer, being devout in our religion are bad things. By no means, Paul would say in the book of Romans. Those are all good things to be exercised as believers out of our faith, but they are not the basis of our hope. They are not what we are to bank our hope on, but we are to bank it on Christ alone. This is not all that different from what Paul says of his fellow Jews in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, that they might be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. He says of his Jewish brothers, they have a zeal for God. When we say that someone has a zeal for God, don't we almost always mean that they're a Christian? Don't we almost always assume that? And yet Paul says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Church family, you can have a zeal. Indeed, according to what Paul says, you can have a zeal for God. But if you are lacking in the knowledge and understanding of Christ and faith in him alone, your zeal is misplaced and has earned you nothing before God. A pastor friend of mine, Matt Higgins, over at Northwoods on the northeast side made this point once pretty clearly when he talked about a group of Mormons that came to his door and that were seeking to, to evangelize to him, to convert him to their, to their faith, to convert him to Mormonism. And he recalled after just a short conversation with them and, and telling them, no, thank you, I'm, not, I'm a Christian and I don't believe you guys hold the truth. And, and you know, they, he concluded his conversation, shut the door. But then he heard something out on his front porch. And so he looked out the window what he saw when he looked out the window was that this group of two or three Mormons who had just come and had just declared what they believe to him to be the way of salvation. They were fervent in their belief. They were devout. Indeed, they were zealous to the point that as they stood on his front porch and they prayed for him, my pastor friend, Matt Higgins, who was inside, he saw a tear run down the cheek of one of the women out on the front porch. And you consider that. And you consider the fact that these people have a zeal. They are fervent. They are devout. But that fervor, that zeal, whatever the case might be, 
If it is apart from the knowledge of Christ, it is worthless. Despite all of what might be described as fruit in his life, Cornelius, as we see him now, is lost. He's separated from God in need of cleansing from his sins. But by God's grace, he has one selected and one whom he is preparing to send to bring, to bring the gospel to Cornelius. As we said, the Lord is doing two things. He is both preparing the heart of Cornelius, but as we know, over in Joppa, he is also preparing his servant, Peter. So then we ask the question, what was Peter's purpose? And I ask this question because we consider the story of Cornelius here. In this angel of the Lord that has come and appeared to him in this vision and told him what to do, basically given him the path to walk in order that the Lord would bring him into contact with Peter and into contact with the gospel so that he might be saved. But why did the Lord tell Cornelius to send for Peter? Certainly the angel could have declared the gospel to Cornelius. He could have declared it to him and to his family and sort of cut out the middleman. And we might ask, why didn't he? Why didn't the Lord just skip that process and just use this angel to tell the man directly the gospel? I mean, to hear the gospel from an angel seems like that'd be even better. But the fact of the matter is, that's not the way the Lord chooses to work. John MacArthur said about this text, he said that most pastors would be the quickest to say that an angel would be better suited to deliver the gospel than men. And as a pastor, I can tell you, I 100% agree. I stand up here in this pulpit week after week and have the privilege and certainly the, the joy of declaring to you the gospel. But let me tell you, church family, I think to myself often how inadequate I am for this task. As I am up late at night looking over a text, reading over commentaries, looking through, diving into the word of God, and I'm stuck beating my head against the wall saying, how on earth am I going to preach this? I don't feel worthy. And even many times after I complete preaching a sermon, I think to myself, well, that was garbage. That was terrible. That didn't do any good for anyone. I can't wait to try again next week. I can tell you that as human beings, we feel inadequate. And yet, what we see is that the Lord is committed to using his people, human beings, as his means and method of spreading the gospel and bringing the lost to salvation. The Lord loves, in fact, takes great joy and glory in the fact that he uses such broken, messed up vessels for such a beautiful and worthy task. Because there have been many of those sermons where after I've preached, I've said, that was garbage. That after having preached, someone has come and said to me, thank you for the word that you gave today. You said something that I really needed to hear. I can't tell you how many times that's happened. When, <clears throat> when I have left the pulpit thinking I had failed, that I had just lived up to all of my, my expectations of myself and I had failed the Lord in the work that he has called me to do. And yet someone afterwards 
will say to me how they were encouraged by something that was said in the sermon. What's happening in that? What's happening is the same thing that we see here in Acts. That just as the Lord uses and and works through broken, messed up people, of which Peter was one, read the Gospels and you'll see that Peter was messed up, he was broken, read Galatians, you'll see that he relapses. The Lord prides himself, takes great joy in using broken vessels, preparing them to, to do the work that he has called them to do. But not only that, as is the case with Cornelius, the Lord is at work in the receivers of the gospel as well. So that for Peter and for Cornelius, all of this was orchestrated by God. They just went and did as the Lord commanded them to do. And through this, the Lord brings salvation to the Gentiles. The thing that we see in this is the Lord's ability, not only his ability, the glory that he takes in using messed up, broken people to do his work. In this, his glory is magnified as he uses broken, dirty instruments to accomplish the most beautiful work of redemption. What Jesus does in using these messed up, broken people, that is us, people who are messed up and broken, to accomplish his plan of redemption, it's like those YouTube videos of those guys out in the jungle that build like wild stuff. Does anyone watch these videos? They're mesmerizing. You got these two guys out in the jungle with sticks and you sit and watch for 30 minutes and at the end of 30 minutes, there's like an airplane fully equipped with like first class out in the middle of the jungle that they built with sticks and you sit back and you go, holy moly, how were they able to build this amazing water park, this theme park with sticks and pieces of bamboo? And you're so amazed at what these guys can do with such garbage instruments. How much more true and amazing is it that when the Lord redeems a people for himself, and he does does so through the inadequate preaching and inadequate abilities of man to do so. Church family, if you are a follower of Christ in here today, then I, I promise you, you have shortcomings. You have failures. But I promise you this also. Despite those failures, despite those shortcomings, the Lord is happy and indeed takes great pleasure and joy and glory in using you for his purposes. It is not a task that he just dumps on us and walks away, though. See, the Lord does not come to his people and say, hey, go out, spread the gospel, come back, talk to me when you're done. Absolutely not. He goes out with us every step of the way. Indeed, he goes before us to prepare the hearts of believers so that as we go out, not only do we not go alone, we do not go to people who are alone, but to people where the Lord is working and moving. It is a task that he is intrinsically involved in every step of the way. (coughs) While this chapter presents for us a monumentous moment in the story of salvation. It has the same components as each and every salvation story has. God drawing sinners, sending sinners, and saving sinners 
through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the story that we see here in Cornelius. That Cornelius, a sinner, was being drawn by God. And Peter, a sinner, was being prepared and sent by God. And through all of this, sinners have been saved, brought to salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Not just these sinners, but all Gentiles who would believe. Our application for today, there are just a few things that I would say, what we can learn from this text. The first thing that we learn is that, as we've said, fervor and zeal are not essential markers of the redeemed. That we are not to trust in religious observance for salvation. That just because one may give alms, just because one may give offerings, we would say, come to church on a weekly basis, volunteer down at the shelter, whatever the case may be, none of those things determines salvation but only faith in Christ alone. And in none of those kinds of works should our hope be placed, but only in Jesus Christ alone. And we also see that God works to orchestrate salvation as he prepares both for the receiver and the messenger of the gospel. So as Christians in here today, we can be given confidence to know that though we are broken, though we are failures, though we are sinful, dirty people, the Lord in his plan of redemption has decided and chosen to use us as his means of accomplishing it. And church family, let me tell you, there's no greater joy than to live in the purpose that the Lord has given us, the purpose that he has called us to. Not letting our fears, not letting our, our, our uh, shortcomings and our failures hold us back, but giving ourselves over to the Lord saying, Lord, I'm trusting that you have prepared me for this task and are preparing me and you are preparing those who would hear the gospel and therefore in faith, I am going to proclaim it. Let's pray.